Good morning, everyone. Good morning on this beautiful typhoon day. Praise the Lord that even on this rainy and windy day that we're able to come together and, and gather to learn from his word. My name is Peter. My wife and I are members here at WSBC. It's my privilege and honor today to teach you from Luke 11. A lot of times we'll reach for a book, we'll go to a bookstore, and we'll see a book that looks really nice. The, the graphics, the illustrations are colorful, but the story's not that great. Or maybe we'll give our kids a book that looks kind of worn, and they're like, I don't want to read that. The cover looks awful. Uh, but then they read it, and they get really, really into it. And so you can't make a judgment call based on just the outside. And so likewise, in China, I've learned a tenyu that expresses the same idea. You guys know that saying, And so I've learned that phrase because when people see me, they judge me. They assume a lot about me from my appearance. They assume that I'm very Chinese. I bet many of you right now think I'm pretty Chinese because I look Chinese. And so when we go to a restaurant or we go to a store, Usually the, the, the waiter, the waitress, or the salesperson, they'll just start talking to me, or they'll hand me the Chinese menu, rather than they'll hand it to my, my Caucasian wife. But honestly, she reads better than I do in Chinese. It's true. I had to write the pinyin here, because I couldn't read the Chinese. I, didn't, I was nervous about that. So people see me, they think of the exterior, okay, Asian face, must have an Asian brain, Asian blood, Asian heart. And actually now that it's summertime, I pick up a tan, and so I blend into almost any Southeastern Asian country. I can look Malaysian at times, or mistaken for Thai, or Korean, and I've even been mistaken to be a Hawaiian before as well. So appearances can be deceiving. And I'm not trying to trick anyone, I'm not trying to fool them into thinking one thing about me. But today's passage from the end of Luke 11, we see how Jesus does care more about the inward heart rather than the outward appearance. And we see how the Pharisees and some other religious leaders place their emphasis on the outside to trick other people. We've already seen before in Luke 7 with the Pharisees there challenging Jesus to another one of these religious sparring matches. And then the people get to witness and see how these religious leaders of their community handled this Jesus, the one that claimed that he was the Messiah. And so for today's overall theme, we can summarize this passage by thinking of Jesus cares about the state of our hearts, and only he can purify our hearts that sinfully focuses on the small things, the outside appearance, and ourselves. So Jesus cares about the state of our hearts. Jesus cares about the state of our hearts. And only he can purify our hearts. And only he can purify our hearts. And it's kind of a run on. Our hearts that sinfully focus on, our hearts that sinfully focus on three things. The small things, the outside appearance, and ourselves. Our hearts that sinfully focus on the small things, the outside appearance, and on ourselves. So as we've studied through this book the last few months, the author Luke continues to explore and answer the question of who is this Jesus? In today's scripture, we go through a specific event where Jesus is again invited to dine 
at the home of a Pharisee. And this invitation happens in the middle of Jesus' ministry. Luke has inserted this story. This story happens in between his teaching in front of large crowds. The phrasing provided by Luke in today's scripture helps separate, separate out the story with the words of Jesus went in at the beginning and closing with Jesus went away to show clearly the start and end of this event. Event first appears to be a quiet interlude in between Jesus teaching to the masses, to the crowds, but actually, even in the smaller, more intimate setting, Jesus releases some of his more direct, explosive, and harsher toned words and rebuke to the religious leaders and the experts of that day. During this encounter, Jesus specifically addresses two groups of people. He talks to the Pharisees and the lawyers. Today's sermon structure will also examine these two groups of people and exactly what Jesus points out in the hearts of these hypocrites. So in his address, direct address to these groups, Jesus also pronounces six woes. And so he gives three woes, W-O-E, to each group. So to walk through today's sermon and the structure, we'll have three main points. Jesus cares about the state of our hearts. Jesus addresses the Pharisees and Jesus addresses the lawyers. Jesus cares about the state of our hearts, number one. Number two, Jesus addresses the Pharisees. And number three, Jesus addresses the lawyers. Just to explain a little bit, the second and third points, we'll go through these three areas of hypocrisy that are pointed out to Jesus. So actually we'll have 2A, 2B, and 2C, and then we'll have 3A, 3B, and 3C. Those will help you kind of organize the thoughts because we're looking at all six of these wolves. And so I'm making a point of this now because we can see that these lawyers, whether they're these leaders, whether they're Pharisees or they're lawyers, they are prone to the same patterns of hypocrisy. And as leaders of the church or as members of a church, we're prone to the same patterns of hypocrisy as well. And so when Jesus rebukes these Pharisees, these lawyers, he points out a wool about three things, how they focus on the small things, the outward appearance, and themselves. It's my prayer today that as we see this hypocrisy that Jesus calls out, that we would pray for the Holy Spirit, for the Holy Spirit's conviction for our own hearts, that we would be soft and humble, so that we're truly concerned with what Jesus is focused on. We need to continue to pray for our own heart condition and place our focus on Jesus. And so we'll explore the first point uh, today. Let's please follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read from Luke chapter 11. And I'll read the first part, verse 37 to 41. Luke 11, verse 37 to 41. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him so that he went in and reclined at the table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. It's the word of the Lord. Let's explore this first point, that Jesus cares about the state of the heart. So as we think about the context, we look again at the story and we revisit our preconceptions of the Pharisees. Many of us have sung songs about the Pharisees before as kids or know that they're a group of people that we don't want to be because they're not fair, you see. 
but they seem to be hypocrites. They interpret the Bible the wrong way. And so they were a group that had power uh, in the Jewish community. They were different than the Sadducees. The Sadducees were more of an elite class of religious leaders. And so the Pharisees, they were more popular among the common people uh, in the community. And so they could have been laypersons. They weren't professional pastors. They may not have been professional priests at the time, but they still had a passion for tradition and understanding of God's word. And so they're the ones that would try to help put into act what was taught, help interpret the Mosaic law in the Old Testament. And so in our modern day church, we can see that. We have people that, that play this kind of role where we lead Bible studies or we lead different groups and discipleship to serve in the church. That was what their intent was. But the Pharisees in the passage, they invited Jesus, perhaps out of genuine interest, to understand more, perhaps to trap him. And so well, we see that most Pharisees do have hardened hearts, that they saw Jesus as a threat to his influence. Some of them also had sincere hearts that wanted to know more, such as Nicodemus, the Pharisee, in John 3. And so we generally have a negative perception of Pharisees, since it was these religious leaders that later plotted to have Jesus arrested and eventually crucified. But we do see that the Pharisees, they loved justice, they believed in the authority of the law and the Old Testament. But unfortunately, they loved that law more than they loved God. And I think they can also be compared with, with the, the conservatives, the evangelical conservatives that we see today, that their tendencies for sin and for areas that they were hardened to are some areas that we can make the same mistakes as well. And so we see that the Pharisees invited Jesus in, and despite some run-ins already with the Pharisees, Jesus still accepted the invitation. He didn't shy away. He wasn't too kutchy to say, no, no thank you, I'm busy. And so Jesus already experienced conflicts with the Pharisees and opposition from the other religious leaders, but he didn't hate them, and he still accepted this invitation. He did this to show his love that gives all a chance to repent. And he went there to point out the flawed state of their hearts, but then provide them a chance to repent. But right away, you can see the Pharisees already have an issue. Verse 38, the Pharisee was astonished to see that he, Jesus, did not wash before dinner. If we read this on the service level, obviously we think, what kind of hand washing is this? We live in the current COVID pandemic world, and we think that Jesus should have personal hygiene 2,000 years ago. It's a good thing to wash your hands before a meal. No, this wasn't that kind of washing. This isn't saying that Jesus neglected basic sanitary practices. The type of unclean that the Pharisee is talking about here is ceremonially unclean. And so the Pharisees and Jews at this time, they wouldn't eat anything at a meal without first performing this ceremonial washing, this ritual. And so they held on tightly to the traditions of their elders. And so immediately before this, they see Jesus is out in the common space, in the marketplaces, preaching encountering all kinds of people, probably some that are unclean, and now he's here eating with us. And so you see verse 7, the dinner invitation occurred while Jesus was speaking, while he was out teaching. And so lots of Bible scholars have looked at this way of washing their hands and what this would have included. Some said that maybe you need a special container, a stone vessel to wash your hands in. Some talked about like the way you held the handle, and then you had to pass the handle exactly the same way to wash the other hand. Some said that if you let the water fall back down your arm, then it made you unclean again. And then the strictest one said that they had to wash their hands in between every single course of the meal 
so that the cleanliness could be maintained throughout. Whatever it was, the main intent about that wasn't about cleaning your hands to have clean hands in hygiene. The way that the, the Pharisees wanted the hand washing was, was more of a ritualistic process. This was about the appearance of washing hands and looking clean in front of others. It was a man-made ritual for purification, and it was added on to God's word. So the main intent of this was to elevate man, to elevate the Pharisees, and allow them to quickly judge others that didn't follow this exact ritual. They added to the Lord's word. So when you make up the rules, then you're quick to point it out in front of others. If we play a board game at home, we make up a new rule, my daughters are always quick to remind me, oh, you didn't do that right, when a rule that they added in, in addition to the manual already there. So this is extra biblical, and it's an additional layer added on, which they viewed would help with the purification process. And so it's ironic that in this amount of time that they considered to put into this hand washing, the ceremony, rather than actually reflecting and washing their own hearts and their own attitudes. And so Jesus replies to them in verse 39, and the Lord said to them, Now, you Pharisees, cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. So despite being a guest, Jesus gives a sharp retort regarding the hand washing. He was not going to take part in the ceremonial ritual of washing his hands. But why was he so against it? You can see that Jesus says that the inside does not match the outside. The outside is clean, but the inside is dirty. They've taken so much time to work on the outside that they didn't reflect within at all. And so we'll explore more of this later when Jesus directly expands on this in his three woes directed at the Pharisees. And so we see again, Jesus cares about the state of our heart. What good is it if you wash the dishes and you only wash the outside, but you don't even touch the inside? Or you have to clean your room and you just kind of take all the stuff, dirty clothes, uneaten food, and just stick it in the closet. The room looks clean, but everything is messy inside. And so what about us? Some questions we can think about from this first main point is how often do we do things that it becomes ritualistic? When we say grace before the meal, are we praying? Are we, are we thanking the Lord for what he has provided? Or do we just say grace? When we confess our sins, do we do it because we know we have to? But are we, are we repentant? Are we turning away from our sin? Are we more concerned with looking the part of being a Christian than actually being a Christian? Or even more, do we think along the lines of the Pharisees where we add extra rules to be a Christian and judge others that they don't apply the rules that we've added. I don't do that. I'm a good Christian. I see these people. They do that. They must not be as good of a Christian as I do. And if you're here today and you're unsure of what it means to be a Christian, do you think that it requires too much? Do you see Christians around you think they're hypocrites? Actually, we're all sinners. We're all in the same boat. We can't achieve that purification, that holiness. And so we'll move on now to the next two points uh, about how Jesus addresses the Pharisees and then the lawyers. And so we'll look at the Pharisees first. And so again, Jesus delivers a total of six wolves, very stinging wolves at the dinner table. He directs three of them to the Pharisees. He directs three of them to the lawyers. And so before we go through this, I just want us to be clear on what this term wool means, W-O-E. Um, it's helpful to know that as we attempt to understand 
the Lord's words. It wasn't an insult. It wasn't a curse. It wasn't only just a rebuke, but it was an overwhelming expression of grief that Jesus felt because he knew of the impending uh, judgment that would fall on them if they kept their hearts hard. We see this similar version of these wolves in Matthew 23, where Jesus also delivers them to the Pharisees and scribes. And there he finishes that with a lament, with a, with a, a prayer of sadness over Jerusalem. And so again, he's saddened to see the condition of the hearts of these people, of these leaders in the community. And this expression of grief is because Jesus is aware of the judgment that is coming. It is a divine warning and condemnation. We see this use of the wolf in the Old Testament as well, in Isaiah 6, 8 to 12, and Habakkuk 2, verses 6 to 19. You can look at those uh, later this afternoon. But in these passages, the authors there express this same woe to groups of people that, that continue to practice evil, that continue to have hard hearts, even with the upcoming judgment of the Lord on those that will turn away from him. And so again, let's go through the next two points. Jesus addresses the Pharisees, Jesus addresses the lawyers, and we see that uh, Jesus has three wolves for each one. So this is our 2A, 2B, 2C. And I made some short phrases of opposites to help us remember these wolves. And so the first wolf, they say, is small things big. Small things big. The second wolf for these two groups is how they turn things inside out. Inside out. And then the third wolf that Jesus says to each one of these groups is how they hurt, not help. Hurt, not help. Small things big, inside out, hurt, not help. So those are the 2A, 2B, 2C, 3A, 3B, 3C. So let's look at the first bowl. Woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and ruin every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Small things big, another way to say that is you major in the minors. You take the small things and you make them into a big deal. But then what happens is that here they focus on the small things, tithing of the mint, but they missed out on the big key fundamentals in their faith. Don't let the small things become big things. How many of you have heard that phrase before? Don't let the small things become big things. Usually when you have um, premarital advice or if you're addressing like sibling relationships or friendships, then you'll say something, don't let the small things become larger issues. Don't let them grow. And so maybe he forgets to bring home uh, a snack that she requested. That's a small thing. Don't let it become big. Or maybe she's accidentally late to meet five minutes. That's a small thing. That's not a big thing. Maybe my brother uh, took my favorite pencil and broke it. That's a small thing. That's not a big thing. Uh, maybe my mom forgot to buy my favorite cereal. That's also a small thing. That's not a big thing. Don't let the small things become big things. Unfortunately, here we see uh, in this wool that that's just what the Pharisees do. They take the small things and they turn it into a big thing. They, they, they make it a big deal and they focus on that as a way to say, look how good we are. Look how, how clean we are. And so here Jesus mentions that they tithe the mint. And so they tithe even the smallest things in their gardens. So what this means is in their own personal gardens, at their home, in their plants, the Pharisees would look at each plant. During every season, they would count out exactly the number of seeds that the plant produced and give a tenth of those seeds to God. So they look at the mustard seed, the sunflower seeds, the, the cumin seeds, and they would count out 10 and then they would give one of those to God. And so this is clearly legalism. This isn't done something in private. They do it 
and then when they do it, they bring it to the temple and they show how holy they are to demonstrate to others how perfectly they follow the law. Mind you, this isn't the law of God, but it's their own man-made rules that they added. And so this adherence to the law doesn't mean that they have a love for God. They have a love for themselves. They have a love to show how perfect they're following the law. And Jesus says that the demonstration of love for God is really, uh, for others to see, is just how we love each other. And so here, Jesus also doesn't condemn the fact that they're tithing, but he does point out the problems of why and the heart of why they're tithing. And so at this point, I'd also like to explore a little bit about the idea of tithing. And we see it happen every service, uh, whether we're members here or if we're new or if we're visiting. And so we might be a little bit unsure of what that part of the service is. Do I have to put a little money into that bag? And so is the church, is the church asking for money? Are they asking money from me? Should I tithe or not? And so the practice of tithing comes from the Old Testament in Leviticus 27.30. It states that every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. And so the word tithing doesn't mean to give, to give money to the church, but it just means 10%. And the tithe did two things in ancient Israel. It supported the work of the priests and everything connected with the operation of a church, of the temple. And also it took care of the poor. It provided for the needs of those in the community that were in need. So when we tithe in modern day, what is it used for? Does the church need money? Does the extra bit just end up in someone's pocket? No. Every month there are members of the church that will work towards updating the budget, where we are spending the money, um, and then they will report that all at our monthly members meeting. And so it's very transparent about where every mao comes in and where it's used. Some of it goes towards rent. Some of it goes towards the paid staff of our church. Some of it goes to the children's program for the curriculum. Uh, and a lot of it goes towards supporting other ministries here in China, in Shanghai, other ministries that, that do the Lord's work. And so if more is collected in, then the members of this church will look at other ministries or other needs and have these compassion needs in the city to see how we can further God's kingdom. And so that's why we give. But then Jesus here is addressing how should we give. I think as we look at giving, we can think about what Jesus states later in the second half of verse 42, that we need to consider justice and the love of God. He says this again in Matthew 23, verse 23, when he says that we should tithe while considering weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And so as we give, those are the things that we're thinking about of giving. Of, of why we're giving to the church, of why we're putting money into that bag. But keep in mind, tithing doesn't mean that we just give God this 10% and the rest is mine. That it's just a tip to say, thank you, God, for, for giving me so much in my life. And so in his book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity, author Randy Alcorn has this to say about tithing. He says, tithing isn't something I do to clear my conscience so I can do whatever I want with the 90%. It also belongs to God. I must seek his direction and permission for whatever I do with the full amount. I may discover that God has different ideas than I do. Another helpful quote by Alcorn is, Tithing is not, isn't the ceiling of giving, it's just the floor. It's not the finish line of giving, it's just the starting blocks. Tithes can be the training wheels to launch us, launch us into the mindset, skills, and habits of grace giving. 
And so this book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity, I've, I've seen it before in the back. It might be out of stock right now, but I highly recommend picking up this book and reading it. My wife and I read it even when we were dating to have the same, to get on the same page about our finances. And so uh, if you are a Christian, you wonder, how do I view finances from a, from a Christian point of view? I suggest you, you read this book uh, to understand that. And so in this first world, Jesus reproves the Pharisees because they neglected the big things and they really only focused on the small things, on the minor issues. And so what about us? How do we highlight only the minor things uh, that we ourselves accomplish and then we ignore the big things at the expense of true Christianity? We just look at, well, I'm part of this study or I do this daily and I'm doing these things. Look at the small things and say, look, God, this is what I'm doing. Do we bring that up to him? Do we use these minor things to represent our faith? And then looking at tithing, what is the main concern of our heart when we tithe? Do we view tithing as, as giving us liberty to do whatever we want with that 90%? The day will come when the Lord will want to know how every mile, every yuan, every fin was spent. And so we'll look at the second wool, how the Pharisees flip the things inside out. Verse 43 says, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. And so what we see here is the Pharisees need to be seen and receive prestige in the marketplaces. They wanted power, prestige, public praise, privilege, but really what it boils down to is pride. And so the phrase inside out means that when you have flipped something, that you reverse the order of priorities, that the inner surface of something has been tor turned towards the out outwards. If you wear your shirt inside out, then you put the, the part you want everyone to see on the inside and you're showing the outside of it. And so this phrase reminds us that the Pharisees were more concerned with the outside appearance than the inside when the Lord wants, knows about our inside, our heart. And so to be more accurate, the Pharisees are more concerned with looking holy rather than being holy. You can see here uh, Jesus' sharp rebuke in verse 40 when he calls the Pharisees, you fools. But Luke is, con continues to uh, include who Jesus is, calling Jesus Lord in verse 39. And so why are the Pharisees more concerned with that? First, they have a fear of man rather than a fear of God. And so they want to be seen at the marketplaces. They want to be in the best seats of the synagogues. Back when I was in college, many years ago, uh, way before Apple, the company Apple branded the term, we had FaceTime. And so this wasn't an app, this wasn't a way to communicate. FaceTime meant that you would be seen at the most popular places, that you would have FaceTime at the best dining halls with the best food, or at the study lounges, the popular study lounges, you bring a book and you'd be seen by other people, or you'd buy good tickets and seating at the, at the sporting events. And so you wanted to get FaceTime so there was a buzz about you. People saw you on the campus and said, oh, I know that guy. I know that girl. And so in this instance, the Pharisees flipped their priorities inside out, and they wanted that FaceTime. They cared more about their FaceTime with the public, with other people, rather than their FaceTime with the Lord. And so friends in the front row, does that mean that you can't sit up here next week? Does that mean next week that this whole group will say, no, we're not sitting in the front of this of this uh, church anymore, we're going to sit in the back. No, that's not it. But what it means is Jesus is concerned with the state of our hearts, the motivation behind it. There are other times where we may feel the opposite, where we feel, well, I'm not, I've, I've had a tough week, I've, I've sinned a lot, maybe I should sit in the very back. 
because I'm not a good Christian. This is not a gauge of your spirituality. It's not the ones in the back are the ones that are farther from the word or the ones in the front are the ones closer. Again, Jesus looks at our hearts. He knows our hearts. And the second reason why the Pharisees are so concerned with this is, number two, they add human standards in order to have leverage to judge. And so this can be linked to the first incident in today's story with the Pharisees at the house and the hand washing that they added beyond the law. They flipped the priorities again. They cared about the external, the outside, the hand washing, rather than the inside, the heart. Their priorities uh, would affect their teaching and that would affect how they uh, impacted the community. In the past few weeks, a few brothers of our church, we've been taking a teaching class uh, offered by the Charles Simeon Trust Foundation. And so this is a class about the principles of biblical, biblical teaching. And so in this class, we learn about how to preach from the word and how to stay on the line. And so there's the phrase of, of, of the line. So what's the line? The line is the truth, is the word. It's the exact truth and word from the Bible. And so if we preach below the line, then we give too much liberty. We give too much uh, loose um, room for interpretation. We miss out on some, um, some of the truths, and sometimes some of them are difficult to swallow truths. And so if we preach above the line, then we add too much of our own thoughts and interpretations. We add our own uh, rules and regulations to it. And so here you can see the Pharisees, they were teaching above the line. They're adding much more to the law than was necessary. And they added that for their own gain, that they wanted to have the upper hand, they wanted to have the leverage so that they could judge and condemn others. Let's move on to the third bowl that Jesus addresses to the Pharisees. Verse 44, Woe to you, for you are like an unmarked grave, and people walk over them without knowing it. And so these Jewish leaders would be familiar with Numbers 19.16. And so that talks about how if you come into contact with a bone or a grave, anything like that, then you'd be defiled and you would be deemed unclean for a week. And then you would have to undergo a complicated cleansing process and you need the help of someone that was clean to help you become clean again. And so Jesus specifically uses that term because he knew that they had this knowledge. And so he used the term unmarked grave in relation to one, how they were so concerned with being clean, but in actuality, they themselves were the ones that were unclean. They were the graves, unclean in heart. And then they infected others. In essence, they were the agents that were actually causing others to be unclean. And so this is why this point of the Pharisees is, is kind of summed up as hurting, hurt, and not help. Because of their own love for um, the laws, for adherence to the laws and the customs, the Pharisees were not actually spreading the gospel anymore at this point, but they were infecting others with a false gospel, with a false truth. And so they were actually hurting the spread of the Lord's kingdom rather than helping it. Unfortunately, the Jews themselves may not have been even aware of this. And just as Jesus says, that people walk over these unmarked graves without even knowing it. They're just led by these leaders that are teaching them the wrong truth. The Pharisees themselves had disguised and covered over their sins, and they made these man-adjusted laws to what they were preaching. But they have already been defiled by their own greed, their own pride, envy, malice. So these three wolves stem from their strict adherence to ceremonial washing, from the, the story that happened at the beginning. Ceremonial washing uh, that was meant to make things clean and pure again, but here Jesus says that the Pharisees themselves 
were the source of defilement rather than of purification. And so we've seen before in Luke how becoming unclean was a prevalent theme. The woman who had suffered from bleeding, both the sick and the dead that Jesus came in contact with. These are examples how countercultural Jesus was to come into contact with these people that the religious society had already deemed as unclean. But Jesus was showing that, in fact, all of us are unclean, that we are all born with the same infection of sin. And so again, you can see the Pharisees were teaching this hypocrisy. They were practicing themselves, but they were teaching it to others and infecting them. And this leads to death to those that practice it. And unfortunately, the Pharisees had had the influence during that time to impact others. And they led them not to salvation, but they led them to judgment. And so the preacher each Sunday, whether it's John or Luke or Joe or myself, we all have to approach this work of preparation with a humble and submitted heart. And so the members of the church, you have a responsibility too that do not allow the preaching to be in a way where traditions and opinions outshine the gospel and the Bible. Tradition, culture, opinions, they must never be placed on the same level and importance as the truth of God's word. And so as believers, we do have to consider some of these questions from this wool. Are we spreading a gospel of grace, of truth from the Bible, or are we living out and spreading hypocrisy and a, a modified gospel that has been muddled by our own sin and our own pride? When people ask us about Christianity, how do we respond? Do we respond only the parts that we want to, that Christians should be happy? Do we live that out? Do we just say, oh, Christians just are happy all the time, that Christians will benefit? If we believe in God, then he'll give us something. Do we spread that false message to others? We know that Christians will face persecution. We know that having faith in Jesus doesn't mean this life will be a comfortable ride for us. Do people, do we stay away from people that we view as unclean? Do we, do we see these people and say, well, I'm not like them. I'm just going to keep my distance from them. Are you concerned with your holiness on Monday? as you are on Sunday. I used to work as a camp counselor at this Christian camp. And so I was a counselor and a director there for four summers. And so we'd invite local bands in to come and, and play worship for the kids. And so one of the bands that came in, their band was called Ready for Monday. And so the band shared about their name because they were saying, well, as Christians, we go to church on Sunday. It's easy to go and gather, go to evening service on Sundays. But then when Monday comes, are you still living a life that's set apart? Are you still living lives that are different than others? Are you being a Christian example to your coworkers, to your family, to your friends? Do you uphold the biblical standards around non-believers or do you just keep that on Sunday? So at this point in the dialogue, Jesus now shifts his focus onto the lawyers, the other people that are present in the room. We didn't even know they were there until now. And actually the lawyers themselves kind of brought themselves into the conversation. And so verse 45, a lawyer tried to justify his own actions. He says, uh, one of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And so now Jesus redirects. And just like what he did before the Pharisees, Jesus repeats the woe to you lawyers three times here. Verses 46, 47, and 52. And just as we dug a little bit about what Pharisees were and understanding who they were, I think it's valuable here to understand a little bit who the lawyers were in the room. Does it mean that Gabe is going down the wrong track of being a lawyer? 
that he's going to be condemned uh, by the Lord. The translation here does say the word lawyers, but we can't think of what it means to be today's lawyer. As we stated earlier, the Pharisees could be thought of more of the laymen in the community. They were committed to practicing and producing holiness. But these lawyers, they were more about experts of the law. These lawyers, they were more of the clergymen, the pastors, the priests, modern-day like theologians, elders, seminary professors. And so that explains better why you see this response in verse 45 when this lawyer speaks and requests for clarification. You see, this expert in the law, he wanted to pin the, the guilt, the blame at the Pharisees at their failure at executing the law. That the experts, the lawyers themselves, they weren't the ones to blame for that, that they interpreted it correctly. But Jesus redirects his attention from the Pharisees to these experts, and he does give them three additional wolves here. And verse 53, it shows that Luke does call this group the scribes as well. So lawyers, scribes, these were the, the religious experts and professionals. The scribes are different than the Pharisees because they had knowledge of the law and they were the ones that could draft the legal documents. So that's where the lawyer part comes in, that they could draft contracts for marriage, for divorce, for, for money, inheritance, or, or loaning of money. They, could, they had that authority. And so it was only through these religious leaders that the Jewish people could hear the old texts and teachings. When we come to Sunday church, we take part in Bible studies or other groups, we, we have access to the Word. We have access. We have access on our cell phones even to read that. We have a physical copy at home and definitely able to read that at any point. But here, these scribes were the bridge. They brought the Word of the Lord to the people, even though we'll see that they didn't do it well. And so again, we'll tackle it the same way. We'll look at each wool individually. Uh, so the first one, again, we see that they, like the Pharisees, make the small things big. Verse 46 says, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. And so again, we see that they have constructed man-made traditions that will muddle and add on to God's law. And so under the direction of these lawyers, the law has now become a burden rather than a blessing. And so these are the pastors of the time, and so they load the people down with burdens. This is the opposite of what David spoke of, the law of, the, of God in Psalm 119, that it was a blessing and a delight. But here, the law is a burden. It's hard to understand, and it's impossible to obey. And so they added new burdens to the Mosaic law, but then they added these very elaborate loopholes. So, for example, they taught that on Sabbath, Man could not carry something in his right hand or his left hand. That was their interpretation of that. But he couldn't carry anything in his hands. He couldn't carry it on his shoulder. If he did, then that would count as working on a Sabbath, and that would break the Lord's commandment to keep the Sabbath holy and to rest. However, the scribes found a loophole that if you could carry something with the, the back of your hand, or if you put it in your elbow, or in your armpit, or on your head, or in your shirt, or in your shoe, then it'd be okay to carry that item. So they found these loopholes to try to say, well, that's how you can get around this law. They made it a burden rather than a blessing. In contrast, Jesus was here to reduce our burden. Jesus says in Matthew 11, verse 28 to 30, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you follow the teaching of Jesus, he actually seems to make the law even harder because the focus of the law was shifted away from just the outward action 
but also inward to the heart condition. The law, as you remember in the Old Testament, it forbade murder, it did not allow for murder, but you could still hate, so it didn't really fix the heart condition. In Jesus' teaching, he condemned both murder and hate. The law forbade adultery, but it did not condemn lust. So you could still not commit the crime, but you could still have lust in your hearts. But Jesus condemns both as well. So how can we say that Jesus' teaching was easy and light? Because his teaching resulted in grace, whereas the scribe's teaching resulted in guilt. Friends, the gospel is what we need, is what, is what we need in order to have the grace of Jesus. He gives grace and forgiveness of our sins when we come to him and repent. The teaching we see here from the Pharisees, from the scribes, they show that more work is needed. So any gospel that you hear where you need to do more than grace, more than to believe in Jesus, is a false gospel. We are forgiven and we're saved by grace alone through Jesus. The experts neglected the teachings of the prophets, and that was part of what this meant here. The rules and regulations they added on to Christianity made it more difficult. They added on these traditions, they added on these different rules to make religion harder for others, but then they found ways to make it easier for themselves. The second will here is the longest will that Jesus states to the lawyers. Verse 47, Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them and you build their tombs. Therefore, also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From, this blood of, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. In this world, Jesus is addressing the works of those experts of the law from before, that they rejected the prophets, they had them killed. And in this present dialogue uh, from Scripture, the experts of the law tried to, look, tried to look righteous, but they really didn't follow the prophets' teachings. And so again, they were flipping this inside out, that they were focused on exterior appearances. They built these tombs to show that they respected the prophets. But in contrast, their hearts, they didn't listen to these prophets, and they still continue to reject even the living prophets, which is really important because if they had really followed and listened to the prophets, then they would realize this man right here who was reclining at the dining table before them was the one that the prophets were speaking about. Instead, they're trying to discredit Jesus and puff themselves up. And so the prophets, remember, they're the ones that are specially appointed by God to call Israel back to the major big issues of loving God and their fellow man. And so the Pharisees and scribes here resisted these prophets and they rejected their teachings. And here Jesus also says that they're guilty of being accomplices in the deaths of these prophets. And so when these prophets come, just as their forefathers did, these religious leaders will also have them killed. And so these can be even apostles that come later on. And so in order for them to appear good, to have a good standing in front of others and respectful, then they'll leave these major uh, projects to build these elaborate tombs for these prophets. And so it's never really been about the message of the prophets or about the Lord, but it's about their own appearance and concern for earthly recognition to see, look, I built this tomb for these prophets. All of this is foreshadowing 
of their eventual plot to kill Jesus, the one true Messiah that was spoken by the prophets and promised by God. And so in this world, Jesus also includes uh, the very first murder of the Old Testament in Genesis 4, and then the last one mentioned in 1 Chronicles 24, which is part of our reading. And so I think most of, our, most of us are aware of the first murder seen in human history with Cain killing his brother Abel. Um, the Lord would hear the cries of his same brother in Genesis 4.10. The Lord asked of Cain, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries to me from the ground. And so today's reading from Second Chronicles also looks at one of the last murders of the Old Testament uh, when King Joash betrays Zechariah the prophet. And so by including these two murders in this dialogue, Jesus shows that the blood of all these prophets of the Old Testament, pretty much from A to Z, Abel to Zechariah, was shed and that they will be charged to this now evil generation. These deaths of these prophets foreshadow the death of Jesus and how the jealous will conspire against him. Here Jesus says that the blood of this, of this generation, of this generation must pay for that. But actually that won't be enough. Actually it will need to be Jesus, his own blood, his pure blood that can clean and purify so let's look at the final woe here now between Jesus, or as Jesus states it to the lawyers in verse 52. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. In this final woe of interaction, you can see again how these leaders of the day actually hurt rather than helped. And Jesus emphasizes two main assertions directed to the lawyers. He says, you have taken away the key to knowledge. They were the gatekeepers. They were the ones that were to bring this truth and knowledge. But then what they did is they didn't reveal it to the people. They set aside the truth of the law, and instead they used their own distorted interpretation of the Scripture. The prophets and the inspired insight which God had revealed to them were set aside and ignored, and they based it off of their own ideas. And the second assertion Jesus makes, you did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. Basically, they were stopping others from knowing the true gospel through their legalism. They added so much more burdens to the law that they blocked the light of the gospel. Just as he told of how the Pharisees were unmarked graves, Jesus here also said to these experts that they're the ones that are blocking the path, that they're making others unclean and unable to reach heaven and salvation. And so they didn't help. They blocked others by making the truth more uh, confusing. And so in verses 53 to 54 to close, Jesus begins to leave the home of the Pharisees to continue to address the large crowds outside. But after stating these six wolves, the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they had a chance to repent. They had a chance to hear Jesus say these wolves and, and, and reflect. But they didn't. They reacted with a hard heart. And so 53, they say, as he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. Their hearts were still unchanged and unrepentant, despite Jesus being so direct in truth to them. In fact, their response wasn't repentance. Rather, they rejected Jesus' words and they resented him, and they continued to look for more opportunities, opportunities to trap him again. They'd rather remain in their own sin, and they actually continued to bombard Jesus with questions hoping to trap him. And so again, as we look at these Pharisees, these lawyers, these leaders, we can look again at our own hearts and seek the Spirit's work 
Is this us? Look at the sorrowful woes that Jesus expresses, and we can reflect those on our own lives. Do we have hardened parts of our hearts that we hide because of our hypocrisy? Do we hinder others from understanding the gospel? It may not be what we speak, but what we do, what we act, how we, how we portray, how we are ambassadors for, for Christ. Have we made obstacles for others so that they can't see the gospel in our lives? Are there things that we do um, just to impress others or to appear more holy? And just like a tune-up is needed for a car, we need to have a tune-up and a check-in with our own hearts and motives as well. And so we should conclude. I think we're easy to think about what only appears on the outside. We look at a book and we look at the cover and we make a judgment rather quickly. And so, likewise, we try to look our best on the outside that the external appearance may not always match the internal heart and motives. And today we looked at two groups of people. We looked at the Pharisees and the lawyers. And though they were people that were recognized by the community as leaders, as religious leaders, but actually they had impure motives. And even worse, their sinful interiors actually hindered others from knowing the gospel. But this message is for us to consider in our own lives the same questions. Are we being careful of being outwardly religious but spiritually dry and dirty on the inside? Are we being the Pharisees? As we wrap this up, we can see how Jesus is concerned with the state of our hearts. An honest reflection shows that we all have a sin problem. It doesn't matter if you're a male, a female, a child, adult, an engineer, a business, businessman or woman, a teacher. No amount of hand washing that you do will make you pure. But Jesus doesn't just look at us and say, woe is you. No, he's the one that is willing to take all of our dirtiness. He's the one that can make us pure. He takes all of our sins. He shed his blood in order to make our hearts pure. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you know us, that you know our hearts. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you care about the condition of our hearts. Lord, that it isn't just works or what we do on the outside that pleases you, Lord, but it's our hearts and our intent, Lord, that you care about. Our works will be an outpour of how we have been changed by you, how we have been changed by the gospel. We pray, Lord, that you would examine our hearts, help us to reflect on how we have become hypocrites in our own way, Lord God, ways that we try to appear uh, externally holy, Lord, when inside we are a mess. Lord, we need you. We need you to clean our mess, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.